Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Jamie Kreiner, the author of The Wandering Mind, What Medieval Monks Can Tell Us About Distraction. Jamie is a professor of history at the University of Georgia. Her new book has been called A Compelling Call to address our current distracted moment with both more seriousness and more humility. In the conversation, Jamie and I discuss discerning our way, why distraction is a perennial problem, how to observe the mind, the role of reading, wisdom in daily life, and much more. Before we bring on our guest, If anyone is interested in learning more about training the mind and becoming less distracted, we are currently offering a free seven-week perennial habits course on the art and science of change for our Perennial Meditations members, which is our daily email community on Substack. The course consists of email meditations on Tuesday and Friday of each week, along with three live meetups. And lastly, if you're looking to take your reading practice to the next level, we have a free weekly meetup every Friday at noon Eastern called Reading and the Good Life. I'll put links in the show notes to check it out. All right, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Jamie Kreiner. Jamie, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I've really enjoyed going through your book, and today we're going to be talking about it. It's titled The Wandering Mind, What Medieval Monks Tell Us About Distraction. But before we get into the book, we generally start with some sort of question around discernment, which is actually a term that that comes up often in the book. And it's, um, it's around how did you discern your path in life? If you could think back to maybe obviously now you're a professor of history and things like that, how did you, you know, think about discernment when you look in the rearview mirror at some of the choices you've made? I think it feels to me like my path was random. Um, I Mm -hmm. was a clarinetist in college and had to take a history course just to meet a requirement. And the one I wanted to take was full Um, on Nazi Germany. Um, Instead, there was an open class on the early Middle Ages. And yeah, it just took me off guard. I had never even thought of this period of time at all. It was sort of a blank spot in my mind. It's not very well represented in popular culture. So um, yeah, it was just intriguing to think about, well, there's all these centuries where people were um, living interesting lives, it would be fun to dig into that. And so um, I kept taking more history classes and it sort of gelled with other things I'd liked kind of my whole life, um, reading reading stories, reading narrative, um, and also writing. I'd um, written a lot, even, even as a kid, like I had a bulky typewriter I like to play around with. So um, yeah, I mean, in the end, it, it 
ended up suiting my sensibility really well, but it's not something I had planned for. Oh, that's awesome. I, I appreciate you sharing that. When you were coming in, you know, before you walked through the door of that particular history class, did you have any other sort of ideas or paths or majors that were running in the background? I had assumed for years that I would be a uh, musician. Um, but I found that in the, um, as a music major, what I liked best was just, um, being in the practice room. I wasn't particularly interested in performing actually. Um, and I I had a really good clarinet teacher who, um, taught me a lot of, um, ways to discipline yourself in the practice room to make sure that even if you didn't have very much time, you could make sure you were focused and um, getting good work done. And I, I sort of liked that aspect of it a lot as a craft. Um, Mm. But I I didn't have, even before I had sort of landed on history, I I sensed that music wasn't really what I wanted to do professionally, but didn't have any other ideas. I was a pretty typical undergrad in that regard, I think. (laughs) Knowing that I wasn't sure, but not having other ideas as alternatives. Uh, I've asked a similar version of that question to a lot of people that, that come on. And a common theme that that comes up is some sort of class in that freshman or sophomore year and a a very similar story to that. And maybe it's the professor, maybe it's the content, but this uh, really surprising love of something that didn't even really know existed. Like, how do you, how do you make sense of, of that and maybe think about that for you as obviously now the roles have reversed and you've got, you know, students coming into your classroom? I think um, this is partly because of personal experience, but I do think it's actually kind of weird when an 18 year old knows exactly what they want in part because they mm-hmm. haven't, um, you know, your exposure to something at that age is still not as um it's not very deep or wide. And so um, I think it's good when kids come to college and say, you know, I've never heard of sociology. I've never heard of, um, you know, Vietnamese, like these options were not visible to me when I was in high school. And then suddenly having the, not only the serendipity of ending up in a class that piques your interest, but also being open to this thing that's new and just seeing if it resonates with you, like having the curiosity and the open-mindedness to let it play out for a while before you dismiss it or make a call. I love it. Love it. And I was thinking of an opening question might be helpful for anyone that's not familiar with a, a monk of maybe painting the picture of how would you describe a, a monk to, to someone? Monks in early Christianity um, came in a lot of different forms um, because it was a new way of life in the late third, early fourth century. Um, they were men and they were women. Um, some of them were genderqueer. Um, they lived on their own in the middle of nowhere. They lived on their own in the middle of cities. They lived in groups. They Um, went from place to place, um, kind of relying on patrons to support them. Um, Some of them gave up everything they had and cut off all ties with their friends and family. Some of them kind of kept the lives they already had, but just prioritized concentrating on God. And so 
um, may have even owned property in some cases, um, still talk to their families, but just um, basically gave up their sort of chasing of wealth and honors and, um, you know, social status. And yeah, I mean, um, the kind of the way they spent their day to day varied a lot too, in part because they hadn't decided what was most effective um, to help them concentrate, to help them pray well, help them live ethical lives that they thought was appropriate for um, being in the world. So um, if, yeah, I mean, in some ways not having a clear image is more accurate than picturing sort of a, you know, um, the stereotypical um, monks we see in, in pop culture. I've had a few modern monks on the on the podcast previously, and it seems like even today, and I would imagine maybe similar back then or maybe more so that the word that you used in terms of the practice room of this disciplined, a, a disciplined life, would you say that is a stereotypical theme for for a monk's life? Yeah, discipline is a word they loved to use. for sure (laughs) yeah so when we think about modern day and you know so many changes i'm sure you've heard heard some sort of similar question to this you know why should we turn to medieval monks to learn about distraction for uh, the modern day i think in part it's a kind of consolation it can feel we can feel kind of desperate and lonely when um, we feel boxed in by our current distractedness. And and some of our distraction is caused by stuff that's really new, but knowing that people have gotten distracted by all sorts of things, even when they didn't have devices around, I think that's kind of a comfort. Um, but I also think it's um, helpful because early Christian monks were a lot more creative and tenacious than we were in deciding that they were going to deal with their distractedness. It wasn't a matter of just sort of fixing one habit. It was a matter of thinking about the issue panoramically and coming up with a whole battery of strategies to try to tackle it through these, you know, simultaneous vectors. So, um, you know, I mean, that's just interesting in its own sake. It's interesting to see how people we don't know much about had really sophisticated, clever ideas about things, but um, it's also, yeah, I mean, they may not be techniques we want to try, but it's at least great to have a bunch of examples. And then maybe we can think of ones that are more appropriate for us now. Yeah. I really think there is something helpful about understanding that distraction is a perennial problem. Um, Listeners of the show are familiar with Seneca, I think, of uh, the Stoic philosopher and this on the shortness of life and many different wisdom traditions of how this idea of distraction. I sometimes think about that when I want to point to social media or the phone in my pocket. Like, is it this or is it more of a, <laughs> the human human problem of, of distraction and something that I don't know. How do you say it? How do you, how do you think about it today in terms of a discipline and, you know, training the mind? How are you thinking about it today? Yeah. I mean, I think that's just it. I mean, instead of just externalizing it and saying um, it's, it's sort of 
these devices that's inherent in our technology. I mean, certainly our tech is crafted to maximize user engagement. <laughs> I think mean, that's just yeah. <laughs> that's part of late stage capitalism. But we under we underestimate our own capacity to um, rethink and rediscipline our minds. Um, you know, monks in late antiquity in the early Middle Ages treated their minds as something more like how we treat our um, our, our bodies. They, it's, it's something that you need to train, you need to exercise, you can improve, you can make it healthier, you can make it stronger. Um, and, and we can do that too. I think it's just not, we don't have, we, we've forgotten a lot of the craft and the art that comes with that practice. Yeah. I love that, that we've, um, we've forgotten it. I, I made a couple notes of, um, some passages from the book that I really enjoyed and I'm excited to explore a, a few of these topics on a deeper level. And one is, is maybe broadly speaking, just observing the mind. Um, there's this thing of thinking about thinking. So what, what, do, what do the monks mean when they talk about thinking about thinking? Um, it, it kind of roughly corresponds to um, both just reflecting on your um, thinking as it goes and sort of your executive functioning, like the decisions you make about what to pay attention to and deal with. So on a most basic level, thinking about thinking could be as a thought arises, um, you watch it come up, you track it, you just see that it occurred to you. Um, it, it could be more involved. Like you make judgments about those thoughts and decide you're going to ignore some and really dig into others. Um, it could be um, moving from there to, um, you know, taking stock of what you've done over the whole day, um, deciding you're going to intervene as your thoughts come up and, um, you know, sort of change your um, mental framework about them. Like for example, if you're praying and you're doing kind of a bad job concentrating on God, you might say, well, what if I imagine myself sitting in a courtroom in front of a judge instead? Or what if I was in the um, presence of the imperial entourage? Um, I obviously would want to pay attention in those situations. I wouldn't be distracted, you know, in a when I was on trial. Um, what if I made that kind of cognitive adjustment? Would that help me think better? Um there's also sort of motivational strategies they used. Like um, I could, I could think, um, you know, I'm going to reorient my thinking more effectively because I'm going to contemplate at the same time that my life is finite <laughs> and either just the yeah. sheer fact of your mortality makes you prioritize certain things over others or, you know, fear of punishment, um, optimism about reward, um, those can be motivating factors too, um, or even better, just sort of developing and nurturing a sheer love of what it is that you want to be concentrating on in the monk's case on God. Um, so a lot of, yeah, a lot of playing and um, taking stock of your emotional state, of your motivations, of your priorities, and also just the, you know, in and out activity of your thoughts, all of that stuff was really important to them. 
It's, it's, it's fascinating. There's a story in the book of one monk that has these two baskets and he's essentially track, tracking the maybe, uh, helpful and, and unhelpful thoughts that he's having. But it is, um, interesting. I'm speaking for myself of, of sometimes how unaware I am of, you know, are the majority of my thoughts about the past? Are they about the future? Are they, you know, this or, or that? Um, but that does seem helpful in some sort of way to observe. Maybe we don't need the two baskets to, to put rocks in, but it doesn't seem like a bad exercise to do occasionally. Yeah. A friend of mine recently was saying that she, um, just the reminder to sort of pay attention to what she was thinking about throughout the day really helped sometimes reroute not only what she was thinking about, but what she was doing. Um, it's in some ways just a really, it's a, it's non-invasive. It doesn't require a lot of labor. It's just a quick check-in. And that's, that's partly yeah. what monks tried to do um, even with kids, little monks fairly early on is just to help them um, be aware, to watch themselves as they thought to use that sort of split, thinking operation. And, and over time, yeah, you just, it becomes um, habitual and really useful. And you used the word uh, tenacious earlier in the conversation. And this, this following passage really, really had me crack cracking up a bit around discernment and a bit of the just tenacity about this, this focus of, of the mind. You write, um, discernment had to happen quickly to keep a thought from evolving into a pernicious psychological problem. Even a small little demonic thought needed to be smashed to bits as soon as the monk detected it. I love this in, <laughs> in a way of this. Basically, it, it connects with, I think, what the Buddha was talking about in some of these ways of, of replacing a a unhelpful negative thought with a more wholesome thought or, you know, the Stoics of, of also just being on guard, if, if you will, to be mindful about it. How are you thinking about this when you think of putting in that into practice in daily life of smashing a thoughts to bits, if, if you will, and, <laughs> um, you know, just being on, on guard for the, you know, really, really negative, nasty thoughts that might arise? Well, one way that um, monks strategized about this was to think of thoughts to depersonalize them or to say, you know, if something occurs to you, you don't have to, you don't have to own it, actually. Um, I mean, for them, it was in a real metaphysical sense, like some thoughts are being sent to them from demons and some from God and some just came from within the self. But if you could not immediately identify with the thoughts that occurred to you, then, you know, that already meant that they could be neutralized, that, you know, you didn't have to sort of let them sink in and say, well, this is who I am. Instead, you would say, well, the thought is acting on me, and I'm just gonna let it go. Like, I don't have to take possession of it. Um, and so that's one way to think about it is just not to get bummed out when you're thinking in a certain way and to say, no, it doesn't have to be that way that I don't have to be, I don't have to be thinking in that direction. Um, and, and another angle, I suppose that was key to the monastic cognitive culture was that, um, you know, you could, 
you know, for them, smashing a thought to bits was a way of saying, you know, maybe even if some of those thoughts had arisen within you, you could just say, um, I, I don't, you know, that's not what I want to do anymore. That's not how I want to think. Yeah, it does seem so powerful to come at it from the perspective of agency, like you were talking about there. But that can be a real tricky and challenging thing, especially if that thought is connected with some sort of desire or some sort of aversion. How do you think about making that pivot to realize that, oh, I'm not my thoughts. I don't necessarily have to really decide to give this any sort of attention or put this into, you know, practice in daily life. Yeah. I mean, it's a question that the monks wrangled with. I mean, they, you know, they wanted to emphasize agency in part because otherwise like that's a pretty hopeless picture. Like you're just, you know, the, the object of whatever happens to you, but they also knew that there was a limit to human agency and that even, I mean, they experience this all the time. Even when you really want to do something like concentrate, you can, you can fail. You can't just make things happen just because you want them. Um, And so they tried to, balance those two forces by thinking about how they as individual humans were affected by all of these larger systems besides themselves. So in addition to all that metacognitive work that was really important to them, they also um, developed other strategies that were more about, you know, working with the environments and communities that they were embedded in. So, you know, recognizing, for example, that, you know, your part of our distraction comes from the fact that we have all these social ties and obligations that, you know, we have competing priorities. It may be that, yes, we want to concentrate on one thing, but we also want to provide for our families, feel like we need to help out our neighbors, really want to support our friends. Um, And so they made hard decisions about what they were going to, you know, what that hierarchy should be for them. Um, And, you know, then created other communities where people had the same priorities and created a kind of supportive social and emotional environment, a group dynamic that really also helped them, you know, do their best work. Um, Still, that didn't always work. uh, But these sort of choices they made to leave one community and join another, it's an example of a structural solution because they knew they weren't going to just fix it as individuals it wasn't it wasn't just a bunch of life hacks that were going to help them out (laughs) yeah it seems like they were well aware of uh perfection not necessarily being attainable at least definitely on a consistent basis in the way of in the way of distraction and and probably many things that seems to be another difficult lesson for us to maybe embrace in the in the modern world that that perfection's not possible how do we necessarily still do our best to maybe limit the distraction and you know increase our our focus and con- concentration to live a uh, you know good life if if you will how do you think about that of you know, just embracing perfection and a a bit of the messiness around this topic. Yeah. I mean, um, even the expert monks 
knew in theory that perfection wasn't possible, but would get really frustrated when they had attained something really special and then lapsed again, or that moment ended because, you know, they just had to go back to regular life. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, just because we forget that there is no perfection, just because we forget that it's all about a continuous process, um, you know, doesn't mean that, you know, the monks didn't forget sometimes too, or maybe they knew it, but just, it, you know, it doesn't stop being frustrating. Um, but because they also repeated to each other all the time that it was just going to be, you know, a continuous effort, a continuous struggle, even from day one until the very end, um, there was something just more, um, I don't know if there was a, there was more acceptance of it, but it just was, it caught people as it, it struck them as less of a surprise. Um, there was just this culture of saying, well, we work at it every day and sometimes we're not going to, it's not going to succeed, but, um, we're definitely not going to figure it all out either. How did they think about the role of contemplative practices, a, a stillness practice or the art of journaling and things like that to help? Um, some of them recommended keeping, um, not diaries exactly, but just sort of a rough outline of what they had thought over the course of the day. Um, that was more of an assistance to their metacognitive work. Um, their meditational practices were much more about movement than about stillness. They thought that um, you could kind of counterintuitively be in this state of flow if you let your mind kind of move from one thing to the next in a kind of structured or guided way so that instead of trying to um, keep the mind still, let it do what it wanted to do, which is move around. But you would um, build on sort of um, linked or associated concepts and, you know, start with something small, um, go from association to association until you've built out kind of this, complex multi-perspective view of a a thing and so the result is not only that you um, feel like you've um, learned more about something but also that you've kept the mind pretty disciplined even while it felt like it was you know getting to stretch itself and and go through the kind of work that it really loved i love it how are you thinking about this in in your day-to-day i'm i'm assuming this is probably 10,000 hours or or a great deal of time thinking and writing about distraction. How do you think this has influenced how you're observing your own mind and navigating the world? Yeah, I mean, I think that this late antique, early medieval mode of meditating in the Christian tradition is really unusual from our um, modern point of view, which is after much more sort of logical, rational argumentation that strikes us as more systematic, comprehensive, and maybe like even encapsulating, you know, the totality of something. And I like that this mode acknowledges that it's always going to be, that it's open-ended, that your, you know, meditation through association can seem really arbitrary and random. And to extent it is in that it's based on what you have happened to have read and what, you know, occurred to you seemingly out of nowhere as you were meditating. On the other hand, that's a more, um, possibly a more realistic uh, acknowledgement that, you know, our, our views are only ever partial. Um, there's going to be more always to explore about a subject. 
And that, you know, the picture we get in the end is conditioned so much by our own particular vantage point. Um, so, you know, it's both an impetus to keep, to keep reading and to keep thinking. Um, but it's also permission to have something be, be personal in a way. And speaking of reading as a huge book nerd myself, um, these monks had some pretty impressive book collections, you know, especially I would imagine back then, you know, even more so, but you say that understanding their relationship to books is important to understanding, you know, how their minds were working and and thinking. Yeah, it was pretty typical for all monks to be expected to learn how to read if they didn't know already when they joined a community. Um, And they were, um, many of them copied a lot of books, um, produced a lot of books on commission, um, traded books with each other, um, their libraries sometimes might be modest, but were you know larger than the average person's. And sometimes it could be really large, like rivaling what like a palace or caliphal court or private collector might have. Um, and they, you know, for them, books were sort of like our wariness about tech um, today. Like you know, books risked being distracting. You might read the wrong stuff. You might just get too into a book, um, go down rabbit holes. Um, you, you know, you could also get really bored as you're reading and then, you know, your mind would wander off and you'd like check to see how many pages you had left. But if you used the book well, and if the books were designed well to sort of enhance your engagement with it, um, then they could actually be a, a tool for concentrating better. So they, um, developed ways to sort of arrange the pages so that it could be, um, you know, I, either it was more engaging or more helpful or informative, or even the text itself could be shaped to sort of embody some of the major arguments within the books. It could be really sophisticated. Um, and then, you know, they also, along with, you know, retooling the sort of way the information was visual visualized, they also developed kind of policies or rules about what kind of habits you should develop, like healthy habits with your technology. So you should read every day, but not too much. Um, You should, you know, in addition to reading from the page, you should also read stuff over and over again. So you you can internalize it and recite it even when the book isn't around. Because the real goal is for, um, is for you to read stuff that matters so much that you, you know, it becomes um, accessible to you whenever you want to go back to it. It's so well developed in your memory that it becomes it becomes a part of you. Like even the way that you speak becomes inflected by the things that you've read. That was um, that was the real way to help you know to use books to transform yourself and become more focused on what was important to you. And if I remember correctly, they many of them were called to memorize you know, like the Psalms and things like that? Or did they memorize long texts? Yeah, I mean, um, for almost all monks, memorizing the Psalter was um, was key. And yeah, that's a, that's a long book. <laughs> that's a long biblical book. Some of them knew much more than that. And they would, you know, they'd trade stories about how um, people seemed to know the entire Bible or even all of the commentaries associated with it or even all of the, and histories they'd ever read or all the saints lives. Um, but those, those stories were circulated in part because that was really special and, um, and shocking. 
Yeah. And they even talked that memory was in a way, you know, a problem and could connect to distraction. Could you say more about memory and distraction? Yeah, I mean, monks had stuff they remembered that they wish they didn't. Like, you know, we we really easily remember like commercials from when we were kids or, um, you know, movies we watched a bunch and monks remembered you know, the kind of like war stories and, um, you know, heroic sagas that they had learned and poetry uh, when they were in school and they might be in the middle of liturgy or trying to pray and those stories would pop back up into their heads. They might even like see the heroes fighting each other uh, and they got incredibly frustrated by it. Um, And so their solution was, you know, um, don't fight it. You know, you can't, you can't empty empty your mind of memories that doesn't work so well but just put in ones you actually want to think about um if you think about all the time and attention you devoted as a kid to that stuff which was really exciting seductive material um you need to put that same you need to put your back into it now you need to start memorizing or just constantly meditating on material that you want to flood your memory with instead and then eventually that stuff will be much more accessible and then you'll have less of a problem reverting to old, old memories. So for them too, you know, just like the mind more generally, the memory wasn't just something to get frustrated about and say, "Ugh, I can never remember what I want to, all of the stuff I don't. Instead, they were like, no, let's work with this. We can, we can work with what we know about the memory and how it works. You bring up a lot of different little stories from monks' lives throughout the book. Is there a favorite that, that comes to mind that you enjoyed writing about? really enjoyed all of the stories about Pacomius, who was a um, monastic founder in Egypt in the fourth century. Um, he, you know, brought a lot of different monastic communities together under his federation and the hagiographical tradition, the stories that circulated about him um, were <laughs> clearly he had this reputation for being undistractable um, and just the variety of, stories of him having these confrontations with demons or really non-confrontations because the demons would try to, you know, get him to bite and he wouldn't, you know, so they escalated their antics to increasingly ridiculous stuff, like dressing up like women to seduce him or, you know, um, doing like mime shows while he's in a cell. Um, All of that was really entertaining. And I think, you know, um, it's notoriously difficult to tell for historians to tell if people are joking, like if stories are supposed to be funny, but I just, it's really hard to read those stories and think that there weren't, you know, there wasn't also supposed to be this comic element to it. For any listeners out there that are maybe looking for the smallest practical tip or strategy to be less distracted, you know, what, what comes to mind of a small nugget of wisdom to walk away with? I think uh, probably the monks would say number one is you need to have a goal. Like you need to decide what it is you want to do instead of scrolling on your phone. Um, Because if you have that in mind, then, you know, when you check in with yourself now and then to be like, is this what I want to be doing? Um, You have an alternative. Um, And yeah, I think that combined with just sort of the, the sort of low grade metacognitive check-ins where you're just like, what am I thinking about right now? Is that, 
Is that mm. my priority that I've decided or is it not? <laughs> yeah, I love that. If just a quick check-in of, you know, how do you remember some of these things? I've heard the strategy of, um, you know, something like that. You could even pair it with every time that you look at a clock. You know, I've seen it, you know, you pair it with, you know, take a few breaths, but it seems like you could also put in something like that of a quick check-in of, you know, what have, I, what have I been thinking about now or, you know, over the last few minutes? You know, we ask a lot of people, we kind of wrap up these conversations, spend the last, uh, you know, 10 minutes or so talking about wisdom broadly. And obviously, the the whole conversation, working with the mind and overcoming distraction um, would definitely connect with wisdom. But I'm curious to ask, you know, if a student, you know, stays after one lecture or asks them to have some time with you and they throw the difficult question of how do you define or think about wisdom in daily life, Jamie, you know, what, what comes to mind? Yeah, I guess that would be um, a sort of terrifying question to go to a student <laughs> right after class. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, as a historian, I guess there's two ways of answering it. One is like, what would the people we study say? Um, and what would I say is, the historian, I mean, I think the monks would say, you know, for them, wisdom was this, you know, agglomerated tradition, this sort of inherited body of knowledge of what monks before them had done, what people they respected before them had done. Um, even if it's just a short quip from one desert mother or, you know, long stories or guidebooks, um, a sort of I don't know. It's, it's both a respect for um, what people knew before you, but also a humility about your own, the limits of your own knowledge. And I guess that's not too far away from how a historian would think about it. Like wisdom is, is probably taking stock of what you know and what you don't know. So both being honest about what you really, where your expertise is and then seeing the limits of that, <laughs> and then asking, well, what do other people know? Um, what can I learn? What's out there? Yeah, I really appreciate that. And it um, it seems like so many things connect to this discernment thing. Like as you're talking about what you know, what you don't know. And then, you know, in some way, like we're, we're taking steps forward. We're navigating some sort of path in life and, and doing this or that. And the discernment thing, like how do we discern whether to take the advice from a, a body of knowledge before us, like these monks and, you know, how we're thinking about it today? I guess, you know, broadly speaking, this discernment thing, when you find yourself at a, at a fork in the road or conflicting information at times, how are you navigating one one path or the other if you will um i i talk to other people i don't you know i think mm. i can get to in my head about it and um mm. and, and actually that's what the monks would do too for discernment they're like you know are, are my thoughts good or bad and they'd often not be able to tell they'd always check in with a mentor um and say mm. <laughs> i'm having i'm having some issues here like please help me analyze this and give me some perspective. They also thought consulting with God was key too. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, you want to, you want to triangulate this sort of situation at least, you know, at least three perspectives because, um, there's always going to be things you don't see. Back to this broad topic of distraction. When you think of social media, technology and things like that, how would you think, you know, these monks or obviously there's also monks today, but how do we utilize technology, you know, in a, I guess, coupled with wisdom, if you will, like, how are you thinking about distraction and technology and, and maybe any specifics that come to mind of, of how you think about, you know, our lives integrated with this modern technology? Well, despite the fact that monks had, you know, retreated from the world in many respects, they were still um, extremely connected as well. And the fact that they had, for example, a circulating set of stories that um, was both a shared tradition from, you know, Mesopotamia to the British Isles, but also had a ton of variation because every time they received a tradition, there was um, there was experimentation with it. There was the addition of new stories or editing out other ones or um, interpreting things in a new way. And, you know, that's that's very much like um, internet culture now, um, whether it's something like memes or whether it's just something like, you know, people are talking about things in very different places and there's, you know, very different spins on them depending on the context. Um, I think, you know, that's, that's a living culture. That's tradition. That's important. Um, but at the same time, you know, you, you need to have have space to reflect on it and decide what is important. And, you know, that's why monks even said, you can't read your books all day. That's, that's not healthy. You're that's bad for your brain. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, this has been great. And again, your book is the wandering mind. I highly recommend it. Really enjoyed reading it. And I'm curious, you know, where would you point listeners that might be interested in learning more about you or medieval history, anything that you like? Um, well, I don't, I don't have much of a, well, I'd have no social media presence, um, but I do have a just university page if people want to, um, there's some like easily accessible articles online that are posted there if you're interested. If you're interested in reading more about um, early medieval history, I would definitely recommend authors like um, Peter Brown, Chris Wickham, Julia Smith. Um, and if you're interested more in uh, medieval cognitive techniques, um, definitely the work of Mary Carruthers is um, key, extremely fascinating and wonderful. And there's also a, um, an edited collection of medieval texts and translation that she um, did together with John Zielkowski called the medieval craft of memory. Um, I use that in one of my classes and it's, it's short texts translated into English that give you um, really surprising and cool vantage points on, you know, different techniques that people used in the high middle ages, mostly for um, their memory, but also just contemplation. So I would check those out. Nice. Well, thank you so much. We'll we'll link your faculty page and link some additional resources in the show notes so it's easy to find. Professor Jamie Kreiner, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Joshua. Thank you for listening. 
I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes, our daily email newsletter, and reading in the good life, a free weekly meetup. Until next time, be wise and be well.